out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Manchester-based band. It is the one and only Magic Roundabout, who appeared in the late 80s on the scene and um, have recently, I think autumn 2021, are going to be releasing their debut album, Up, which is going to be on Third Man Records. And um, yes, they've had various singles and a bit of publicity that's been coming out. But we'll find out more about that throughout this interview, hopefully, because I recently caught up with Linda Jennings from the band to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, yes, so um, if you want to know more about the the band, it is uh, the album's coming out on Third Man Records. It is called Up. Anyway, Linda, we want to know more details. So look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Linda, it's over to you. My parents listened to Swing, so they listened to Sinatra, Tony Bennett and all that stuff. So that's been, it was, I mean, I didn't mind that. Any music did it for me. So at three years old, which would be in 1970, when I was three, I used to get up and they bought me this Doris Day children's record. So that was my first sort of LP that I used to play for myself. She would sing... Um, Doa Dia from um, Sound of Music and K Sarah and Inchworm and all that sort of like kiddie, kiddie And then when I was about six, there was a Beatles cartoon from America came mm-hmm. to the UK. And it was the Beatles were talking in American accents, but they would have songs and they'd have a little ball going over the words. I thought, wow. I really like this, you know. So that that was my first sort of uh, getting into the Beatles when I was six. Even though the family didn't have any Beatles, I thought I like these songs, you know. Yeah. You know, that, that was my first sort of real getting into something, you know, when I was about six. Oh, that's very that's very good because we were because I was brought up sort of in the the wonderful world that was the countryside in East Anglia. And sort of being kind of working class background, I think when my parents married, I think people would just kind of sell everything and they they didn't have a record player until they sold it in the 50s probably and then sort of got one in the early 70s. So it was just the kind of radio and what was on the telly that we had. But but then, you know, in the 70s... We had had a proper uh, record player and it had uh, 45, 33 and 78. So, so my dad brought some 78s from his dad's house and I tried playing those when I was a teenager. They were like sort of Glenn Miller and um, Bill Haley um, and Buddy Holly. So that was, that was a bit of a, a quirky thing to try, a 78 on this, on this were your parents quite hip and happening then? Because they were into sort of swing. No, no. My, my parents had me late on. So my parents got married in 1953. And I didn't turn up till 1967. So mm. they, were, they were late. They were late sort of parents, really. Um, my mum didn't want any kids. But my dad sort of made my mum have my brother and myself. <laughs> so... Ah. Uh, so there, yes, the dynamics of life. So your seventies, really, you you sort of 
you were too young to really sort of remember that kind oh, of thing. No, I, I do. I remember all the 70s stuff. I've got quite a good memory. I've got quite a vivid memory of, of music and tunes. Yeah. And a, lot, a lot of uh, holidays where I remember being a boiling hot summer um, in 76 and the music then playing. And I remember... I'm not in love. Ten CC on the radio. I just, I just remember that that sort of mid seventies. I do remember the music from then, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the but you must have, you always, must have the Commodores three times a lady then, because that was around yeah. the time, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. So, so all, the, all, all the sort of uh, the radio was on, and we'd listen to the charts on a Sunday and record it on a cassette. The classic play. seven o'clock on a Sunday and top of the pops on yeah. Thursday at seven as well. Yeah. That was such a song. Yes, yeah, such a moment. So, what was what was your you know what was Manchester like during that period? Well, I lived outside Manchester, so I was probably half an hour's drive from Manchester. So I was living in a little small town, working class town, where there was um, a British Rail place where they built the carriages and, the, and they built the, the engines there so there was like this bit of industry and obviously there were the mills, the, the cotton mills in, in Bolton where people were sewing clothes and everything because they hadn't obviously defected to China and India then so people mm. were still making things you know. So I wasn't really in Manchester city centre till I was much older, you know, till I was a teenager. Maybe 15, 16, I would go into Manchester with a friend. That was like the first time I would be going to watch a band or, or go out. Because you didn't get ID then either. So <laughs> you could put a load of makeup on and go and go out, you know. And not get yeah. your age. Because no. recently, Cherry Red Records brought out that seven CD box set of Manchester, which, frankly, from East Anglia, we felt very jealous when I did. So, were you aware of the kind of the amazing music scene that was all around that area and, and the bands that started to emerge, especially the, the indie bands? Yeah, I mean, we, we, the band, our band, when we formed the band, it was sort of 1986. So, Things were, things were sort of, the indie scene was quite, you know, obviously they'd had the new wave after the punk thing. So there was quite a few bands, up and coming bands about. But it's just remembering all the names of all the bands. No, Obviously the bands that got signed to Manchester, we missed out on, on being one of those bands because we split up before before they all got signed up, you see. Yeah. Miss that, really. Tricky one. But it was a brilliant place to be, you know. It was absolutely amazing. I used to go to this place called the International, and loads of bands would come, and they'd come from America as well, so we'd have, like, the Violent Femmes and Love and Rockets, which were Bauhaus without Pete Murphy, and all the uh, ZZ Sputnik played, all these quirky wacky bands would play there and now it's a turkish um supermarket nice such a shame because <laughs> it was just the best venue that i went to at the time you know in the sort of mid mid 80s you know? yes because we had the punk period and then there was the post-punk period of 
um, sort of, you know, this is kind of very simplistic, but, you know, you had bands like Magazine, Gang of Four, Public Image Limited, The Nightingales with Robert Lloyd, and then sort of, eight, you know, then a bit later, you know, a few more years down the line, you know, Thatcher got in 79, then there was this sort of the Falkland crisis, and then there was the minor strike. So, you know, suddenly the indie pop world starts to happen. And I've put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which was the years of the Smiths, let's face it. Yeah, the Cure, the Cure as well. I mean, I like the Cure at the time. I thought they were great. So, did you come across people like the Nosebleeds and Morrissey and Johnny Marr? Well, I did. I did go and see the Smiths in Preston, and I literally saw them for about five minutes because I think Morrissey threw a drumstick into the audience. And then the audience member threw the drumstick back at Morrissey and it hit him and he threw a wobbler and he left the stage and the band left and they, they won't play and we had to get a refund. <laughs> <laughs> so I was absolutely gutted that I didn't see a full Smiths concert, you know. My God, <laughs> minutes. That's just so but the, the weird thing was, though, I've got photographs, but obviously I haven't got them to hand. Uh, we managed to get seats behind the stage and it was like above it was like above the stage so the stage was there and people were like facing the stage and then there was this like side bit where you could sit but you was almost behind the band so I took quite a few photographs and I've got a really brilliant photograph of, I think Johnny Marr's like waving his arm like that as though he's going to like strum his guitar and Morris is there, and it's a great photo. I'll have to dig it out and send you a, a scan of it or something. Wow. Brilliant picture. And then the gig got cancelled. <laughs> I never got to see him, you know. Yes. But were you, I mean, what was your, you know, what were the schools like? In, now I'm sort of based in all Manchester on either the football team or, or Morrissey's lyrics and the Smiths. So, so what was it kind of? Um, but you were outside Manchester. You so you did you? Yeah. So my my school used to be a grammar school. So my brother went when it was a grammar school, and then it turned to a comprehensive, and I just went to the comprehensive because I didn't. I don't even remember doing an eleven club. Yeah. I remember taking one. No. So whether I took one or not, I don't know. But I went to that school that my brother went to, and it wasn't it wasn't particularly good. But I did have a good English teacher who was into very working class novels like Spring and Port Wine and A Taste of Honey and Kestrel for a Knave. So he made us do all that stuff instead of Shakespeare and Chaucer and that sort of thing. God, so it was pretty, yeah. quite interesting. But then there was a public school in Bolton, so there were quite a few. Well, to lose there, you know. Nice. So you were, so in '83 you were 16. So when you thought, when did you decide that you wanted to be in a band? Well, I got a guitar when I was 10, and I started playing songs with a friend when I was about maybe 13, uh, like properly try and learn songs and listen to the record and try and work out what the chords are and sing. And I was singing at school in, in like choirs. So I was learning to do harmony singing in choirs and stuff at school. So then I, I started going to Horwich Folk Club uh, with my guitar. So I would sing some songs there when I was about 15. And then I joined a punk band called Exxon Mombasa. And we did um, the Stranglers covers, 
Sex Pistols covers and some of our own songs, which we write really awful, you know. And then I joined this covers band, but it sort of was awful because they wanted to do um, Lionel Richie and all sort of like quite mainstream soul type stuff. And I wasn't really into that sort of thing at the time. I was more into like indie, uh, new wave things and punk things and uh, goth stuff, you know. So I wasn't really into that band. And then um, I, I started going to art college. So this is when I met Paul, the bass player from Magic Roundabout. Right. And we, we sort of, he says, oh, I'm going to get a band together. I said, well, what do you play? And he said, well, I don't play anything. I went, well, how are you going to get a band together if you don't play anything? I said, is there anyone else in the band? He said, yeah, my friend Nick. I said, what does Nick do? Oh, Nick doesn't play anything either. <laughs> <laughs> but they thought about having this band for like a couple of years, you know. I said, well, I've been singing at school and I play guitar, so maybe if you get me in your band, that might help with the starting of the band, you know. <laughs> yes, it was very optimistic, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And was so then it... they had to get other instruments to sort of obviously join in with what, what I could do. You know? Yes. And so when did, was that the nucleus of the band or did you, you had another member, didn't you? Yeah, we, um, Carrie joined us a bit later. She was someone I met when I was doing the photography on the art college. And there were two other girls that were at art college with Paul, the bass player. They, they really liked us and wanted to be in the band, even though they couldn't play anything either. So they ended up with tambourines. So, okay. so we, we, the three of us were like the nucleus of the band and then the others were, were sort of added on, if you know what I mean. For, for like I can be really <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's got to be done. But um, yeah, so when did you sort of go into the studio for your first recording? Well, I think we'd, we'd, we'd sort of tried to write a bit of something in the summer of 86, sort of autumn time. We were sort of practicing a lot, trying to like, obviously they were trying to just learn to play instruments you know, <laughs> for a while um and then so we wrote we wrote a few early tunes and then we went to a place called the kitchen which was in hume which was like a very um where morrissey used to actually hang out hume where it was quite a sort of um i don't know a bit like east germany really <laughs> like east german sort of high-rise type blocks you know this guy's yeah. studio there and it wasn't really expensive so we thought wow we found this guy called jamie who had this um, studio called the kitchen so we went and recorded the first few songs we'd written which were pretty rough really you know uh, so was this the was this the kind of the massive housing you know the flats and the housing estate yeah 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 just hold that thought just literally one second <laughs> Because um oh no that was that was very spontaneous yes because recently I've sort of got oh look here it is yes the, this one here one of these ones I don't know if you've seen this publication where they've got oh brilliant yeah so they've got great yeah so it's one of yeah it's one of it's one of those in there somewhere yeah well, there was it another was, one. 
it was called, the place was called Charles Barry Crescent. Nice. That was the name of that was the name of where the studio was, Charles Barry Crescent. I don't know. I don't know who Charles Barry was. Hmm. Whether he was an industrialist or whether he was, you know, anybody special. Yeah. Because there was um, quite a few bands that, well, a lot of people lived there, and I suppose it was cheap and very cheap. But I know that yeah. members of Big Flame were there. So did you sort of pick up a bit of a musical community around that area? Yeah, it's a bit of a, it was a weird, a weird, um, a weird vibe because there was a mixture of tunes really being played at parties and and uh, people taking drugs and, and stuff. We weren't we weren't really into drugs in Magic Roundabout. We, we sort of, uh, we just seemed to just, well, I don't even think we got really drunk because Paul was driving. So I don't think he, he got too stupidly, you know, he didn't have loads of drinks of the driving, no. taking me home or taking people home because he was the only one that could drive at the time. <laughs> so he, he took us everywhere. So we, we, when we were all together as a band, we, we would go in his car, yeah. And you you played a lot of gigs, didn't you? Supporting bands. We did actually. We we started off with a blue aeroplane in the February of '87, and we'd literally only just written sort of enough tunes to do on the night of the gig. You know what I mean? We'd, we'd only just really got enough songs. You know, it wasn't like a two-hour show. We just didn't have enough material. Yeah. So we were like the opening act for Blue Aeroplane who were in like NME and they were in the they were in the sort of magazines and the the papers of the, the music papers of the time. So it was quite quite a, an exciting I was imagine so. But then you you also supported Spaceman Three, Luke, my brother. Spaceman Three, Osric Tentacles, Luke. I mean Luke were in NME and and um, the the other the other uh, music papers. So at this stage, um, the primitives. We saw the primitives. The Darling Buds were supported. The Darling Buds. My God, you were right there, weren't you? So were you getting much interest from record labels at this stage? We, well, we had a gig. Um, we watched a gig at the Boardwalk, and Tony Wilson was there from um, Factory Records, and I had this cassette because obviously cassettes were all the rage, of course, mixtapes, everything. I thought I'm gonna try and give him this cassette, you know, to see <clears throat> see if he'll if he shows any interest in our, you know, we put numbers on and all that sort of stuff. He didn't seem he didn't seem bothered, and that was about that was about all really. I, I think we were so into what we were doing in the gigs, we didn't we weren't really chasing like a label, and then before you know it, we were like disbanded. <laughs> <laughs> It was literally like such a short, such a short window with the band that it was just like it was over in a puff of smoke sort of thing. Yes, so it's a shame. Such a shame, you know. It is such a shame. So, can you remember much about your the recordings that have come out? Sneaky feeling and song for Gerard Langley. Well, Gerard Langley's the singer in the Blue Aeroplanes. And we just sort of really like them, so that's why that song was dedicated to him. But we were really into Violet Underground and a lot of that type of music, a lot of the feedback he got, stuff like Jesus and Mary Chain. 
King of the Slums and sort of those sorts of bands. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I got inspired with writing the actual chords and the, the melodies. Because um, a lot of it's because you see, Nick would write lyrics and then I would sing the lyrics and I would play certain things. And Paul would obviously try and join in with the bass and, 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 add, and add in what he thought would fit. So it was quite, uh, quite organic, really, how we wrote yeah. things. Because we weren't, we weren't trained musicians. I mean, I'd had some classical guitar lessons at school, but I, so I was the only one that had, had any real sort of any idea. But I, di I didn't really know what chords fitted together. It was just what they liked. So I would play something, oh, oh yeah, I like that. Can keep playing that chord. I like that chord. And so we just, it just, it was just really quite, um, I could say organic. It just sort of seemed to just pour out really. So when you did when you did Sneaky Feeling, was there a sense in the band at that stage that things were going to continue a bit longer? Oh, definitely, because I wrote we wrote um, me and Paul wrote Sneaky Feeling in January of '87. So we obviously we'd formed in the summer of '86, but they couldn't play any instruments, so it took them like quite a few months to get into playing the bass and playing the drums and getting the rhythm together and everything. So then it wasn't really, I mean, we'd sort of wrote a few songs before 87, but that, like, Sneaky Feeling was written in the January of 87, and then we did the gig with the Blue Aeroplanes in the February, so we were literally, like, rehearsing a lot at the boardwalk to try and just get a proper sound, get our sound, get that feedbacky, slight feedbacky sound, the, you know, just the, gear, just the equipment we had. Yeah. We just didn't have any money to buy any fancy gear. We just had to sort of muddle through what we had, music gear-wise, you know. And then what happened in 87? So we we kept doing these gigs and we were like going all over. So we went to Sheffield, Chesterfield, Leeds, Bristol, Birmingham, Manchester, Stockport. Quite a lot of quite a lot of places over a short window, really. Not a tour as such, no. but like, hey, come and play with us all. We support us, you know. So we seem to be this really popular sort of band for doing little support spots. And then and then Nick, Nick had this idea about moving to another town, another place. So we ended up going to Nottingham in, like September of 87, something like that. And um, we thought, hey, this place seems quite cool. So we decided we were going to move there. So they moved there in the November of 87. And I was work I had a bit of a job as a home help, which was like two and a half days, just so I had some cash. Mm. So then I, I moved to Nottingham in the December of 87. And we were all living in this house together. Well, we'd never lived away from home and we'd never lived together. So it was just like, it's your turn to wash up. No, it's not. It was like the young ones. It was just this constant battle of fighting and, and like, it's your go in it. And I'm not cooking the tea. And I, you know, so we ended up falling out with each other and splitting up. And they returned to Manchester and I just stayed in Nottingham because I thought, I'll just stay here. I'm going to stay. Oh right. So you yes, well, well that's a bit dramatic actually, wasn't it? It was a bit I think yeah. 
Robin Gristle used to have a bit of a communal house and Chumbawamba in Leeds had a little a spot yeah. as well. So, so basically sort of living together with your bandmates just didn't work out. No, because we just kept falling out. But we, we ended up staying friends afterwards. But at the time we were all together, it was just like we were all missing our family and friends that were in Manchester. And But it was like, it's your turn to do the washing. No, it's your turn to, you know. So it was, like I say, it was a bit like the young ones. We were just like fighting over who's making the meal, who's washing the pots, who's doing the washing, who's doing, you know. Which is quite a shame, really, because we've got such a thing going. And I think if we'd not moved away, I think things would have been a lot, lot different. You know, I think we would have carried on with the momentum of, of what we've done and, and, and possibly maybe part of the Manchester thing if we'd stayed at home. You know what I mean? If we'd stayed in Manchester, it would have yeah. been better, really. But that's just one of those things isn't it you know it is it's always in hindsight so then what happened to to you kind of musically or any of the other members did anybody go on and you know create any more sort of band sound well i i i met a bass player and that and his band needed a singer so i ended up being a singer in a band as soon as like when the others had moved away i i stayed in Nottingham and I, I ended up marrying this bass player. Excellent, what was the band? And having a child with him, so so I ended up uh, carrying on doing music but in Nottingham. Um, Paul, the bass player, and Carrie ended up being an item and they're still together and they create, they, they write like jungle stuff and they write house, housey, jungly, they, they, they write stuff. They don't really play instruments, but they do write a lot of things and they've worked with a lot of singers and Paul's done a lot of DJing um, around Europe and, and with, with his music called Backdraft. And uh, Nick, Nick's sort of done um, studio stuff. He's not, he doesn't play anything as such really. Um, he does play a bit of guitar, but it's now I wouldn't say it's like, Opera guitar is sort of it's just his own weird noise. <laughs> yeah. But we've written together, we've written songs together for about 20 years. We we sort of got back in touch and started to write a bit together, you know. After all. But he he does a bit of recording and writing. So when did when did the sort of the band or, or, or you suddenly sort of got back together in the sense of putting this band camp and Facebook page together? Well, it's weird because, um, well, Ian Masters from the Pale Saints has sort of uh, sold us with Magic Roundabout and he kept in touch with Nick. So they've kept in touch for a long time. Ian Masters lives in Japan and he's released quite a lot of different things. And, and Nick was saying he found some, well, I found a cassette with some old Magic Roundabout stuff and he found some stuff. So. Ian wanted to release one of our songs called Carol in Your Eye. And he wanted to know what the lyrics were because he couldn't tell what I was singing. So, so he wanted me to write the words out. So that it sort of got the ball rolling. And then someone from Third Man ended up hearing some of our stuff and then they wanted to release it because they really liked it. So it's weird because they were going to maybe release some stuff of ours and then third man jumped on it and said we want to do it we want to record we want to 
do a recording of it and we want to bring it out somewhere. Yes. So was this all last year or the year before? No, no. I mean, um, the thing with Ian was going to come out sort of last year. Um, and then when Third Man got wind of it, we ended up getting a sign to them. And then obviously we've had to sort of wait a bit because of COVID and all that stuff. Yeah. So we released Sneaky Feeling in April. So that was so exciting, that. I mean, I love that song. And we, Paul, Paul and Carrie managed to find a video, which is on YouTube. Have you seen that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I've just been so impressed how much kind of archive stuff you've put on Facebook, actually. It's been just... Yeah. I mean, I've, I've actually, I've actually got a massive, a massive bag of, of all the all of Nick's lyrics here. You know, I've got loads that still need to go on there. We've got, I've actually got a. Um, so does that mean that you've got more material that's all waiting to be kind of remastered? So and put out? God, what a fantastic poster! The time element. God, it's so psychedelic. Yeah. Slide and stomach presents. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, so does that mean that there's kind of more stuff in the archives that that third man wants yeah, to Yeah, there should be a little bit, should be a little bit more, yeah. I mean, what's really annoying is some of the recordings are just too poor for us to, to sort of um, tamper with, to, to use, you know, to, to release, you know, they're just too, the quality's too poor really of some of the early, early songs, which is a shame really, because it, it would have been good to, to have a really good back catalogue out there, you know, for people to sort of uh, remember us by, you know. Yes, because I know in Preston there's this little record label called Optic Nerve, and they've been bringing out lots of stuff which has kind of been forgotten, but, uh, you know, they've managed to remaster it. And I think there was an amazing one from a hangman's beautiful daughters who was they lived in a squat in London, the ambulance station, and that album came out kind of last year, which was quite fantastic. So I just wondered if there was kind of enough material you've got to bring out, a, you know, like a 10, 10 track vinyl record or a CD. Um, we, we probably haven't unfortunately got enough to bring out a big, a big sort of compilation thing. But um, I do know how to play the song, so whether we'll like do a re-recording. I mean, it's just not going to be the same, is it, with modern technology? It might not be. You're not, you're not going to get that same sort of uh, grit, really, that same sound that you got back then. Because Just because Jamie was such a nice guy in the studio, he was just sort of a really cheap and basic guy, but <laughs> it seemed to... It seemed to hit the spot, you know. So with the, the original members, there was you, Nick, Carrie, Paul, Nicola and uh, Marie. Yeah. Um, which ones, have you managed to get back in touch with all of them? Yeah, well, yeah, we're all in touch. I mean, I, I've been recording with Nick and Paul and Carrie live round the corner from me. So, <laughs> so we, we can get a cup of tea anytime, you know. We, we found each other a few years ago on Facebook and realised that we, we live around the corner from each other, which is bizarre. <laughs> but the chances of that, you know, of, of a band splitting up 34 years ago and then 
meeting up again and, and having cups of tea and chatting about things, you know, just very strange. That is very yeah. random, actually. So if you could have said something to your 16 or 18 year old self starting out in, in the world that is or was in you know, music, what is there any kind of advice or any kind of key bits you would say, do this or don't do that, or that was well done, but I would have done that a little bit differently? Um, probably for me anyway, I, don't, I can't speak for Paul and, and Nick, but maybe drink less. <laughs> Because I've I found an old diary. I found this old diary. And it's from 1987, and it's sort of uh, all sort of uh, what you can see in my handwriting. What really childish teenage handwriting. There's quite a lot of entries of me having a drink and then being sick. <laughs> so, yeah, which is not not very good, really. But um, so I think I think I would have maybe put my foot down and say we're not moving to Nottingham let's stay in Manchester I think I think I would have yes and if, I go, if I could go back and, and and let us carry on with magic roundabout it would have been no and do and does Nick and uh Paul do they also think yeah that was a bad time that was a bad move yeah they, they maybe thought it was a bad idea um, now I think at the time we just saw it was like a quirky thing to do, you know, move to another city and try and do the music there. You know, I mean, we did meet some good people. We met a, we met a drummer called John, who was great, and he had a, a Hammond organ, and we, we got playing that. And we got this accordion player to play, and we, we were formulating some other tracks, some other tunes, you know. But. Um, like I say we just had these uh, four lights over living together. You know? Yeah, washing up. I know. I remember the, the kitchens in those kind of communal places were disgusting. You'd always have yeah. to wash a mug up if you wanted a cup of tea or coffee. It was just like, yeah. and it was just, you know, been there for days. But, um, you know, with on yeah. the background, you, know, you managed to get quite a lot of supporters for that. So have you been kind of excited about the amount of people who have kind of. Yeah. No, it's been great. Some people go, oh, we remember you. We went, we saw you at such a place. And I just think, wow, it's so, because it was such a, it seemed like a quite a whirlwind. We were just seemed to be constantly doing things and going places and meeting people. And they were all quirky and funky sort of people, you know. They weren't sort of a dull, dull humans. They were quite sort of a... Um, some were quite hippie-ish and, and some were quite right on, you know. Yeah, um, well, it was a very... It's just so difficult to remember all the names of everyone and the people that you meet and you think, oh, I wonder where he got to them. You know what I mean? It's it's Because that time, you know, it was, so, it was going along so quickly that you just couldn't... You know, I didn't keep... After this year, I didn't keep a diary. Do you know what I mean? So there's oh, no. a bit this diary that actually say what we did you know <laughs> so when you were looking through the archives as well as your diary did that feel quite an em emotional journey yeah i mean i remember some of the events i remember clearly some of the things that we did you know um i just remember vividly um just going shopping and <laughs> Going for watching a band going for a drink and, and being with the band and then going rehearsing in the boardwalk. And I remember the band James had got an advert saying bass player needed for James. I remember seeing it and thinking, wow, 
if I get a base, I could be the best player in the game. And then another time, I remember us setting the gear up and, and uh, we were just ready to start rehearsing. And the Happy Mondays walked into the room and they said, this is our room, get out of our room, we put this room. And they were like really nasty. And they served that they had to find a different room to practice in. So I remember that vividly as well, Sean Ryder and, and, and the crew all just sort of manhandling this room. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're like, oh, they're rubbish, and then they ended up getting signed with the Manchester thing. So yeah, it's quite annoying, really. But they'd been like this really horrible, chavy sort of scroty band, <laughs> all like not very nice, not you know, a bit unsavory characters, you know. Got signed, you know. It's like, why did they get signed? You know. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, did it feel kind of strange a few years later when Manchester became the centre of the musical universe? Well, yeah, it was because I was living in Nottingham, so I missed the whole. I missed the whole thing. You know what I mean? It was like, ah, it was. Like, <laughs> it was like wanting to scream. Because it's like, I should have been there. I shouldn't have been living in Nottingham. I should have been in, living in Manchester with a band and doing the thing, you know. Like in Spiral Carpets got signed. And we, we were friends with, with Clint Boone and, and his Spiral Carpet. And even when they got pretty famous, and they came to my house in Nottingham when they played there. They actually came for a cup of tea at my house <laughs> in Nottingham. So... And I got given T-shirts with the cow on it and the moon thing and all yeah. that sort of thing. You know? So I was sort of a little bit jealous, really, that they'd got signed up and they'd got, you know, they got on TV and all that sort of thing. I know. Well, the nineties. I mean, it was interesting. A lot of the the members of the audience in those indie bands from the eighties, because obviously the indie bands of the eighties didn't get huge commercial success. But then in the nineties those people who went to those gigs, you know, a lot of them formed bands and suddenly became, you know, huge top-of-the-pop stars, didn't they? Oh, yeah, because Noel, Noel Gallagher was a roadie for, for um, the Inspirals. And yeah. I probably met him and didn't realise it was him, you know what I mean? I probably didn't even, like, suss out it was him because he was doing, you know, he was helping move all the stuff, you know. So, so I pr he probably came out and that dear listener is the end of the interview sorry the quality was not that brilliant but that was um, a slightly poor connection but all the same you get the gist of um, the world that is indie pop from manchester in the late 80s and that was me in conversation with Linda Jennings, a big thank you for giving me the time for that. This has been the C86 Six Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Have a great week.